Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. A very common story that we tell ourselves is that struggle is bad, it's the problem. Like if we could just get like everything to calm, if we could get all things fair, if we could get time off, time away, get things organized, get things systemized, then we could see straight and live better. And don't get me wrong, getting away, finding introspection, getting time off so you can rest, these are all good things, even essential things. But every time we unplug and tune out, we take something with us, always the same thing. We take ourselves. So like what if true sight and perspective was found in the tension? What if the scene was in the struggling? I wanna show you one of the oldest and in my opinion, most profound stories in the Old Testament scriptures. It's found in Genesis chapter 32. It's about Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson and he's now the central character in the biblical story. And he's a, he's a wanderer, just like his, his father Isaac and his father Abraham. Jacob is on the move. Jacob was also a liar. His name means to grasp at the heel because he was a twin and he was grasping uh, Esau, his older brother's heel, as they came out when they were born. And Jacob was cunning. He was always working the angles. As a matter of fact, in the ancient Hebrew world, his name, Jacob, eventually came to mean deceiver. Now Esau, the older brother, he was set to get a double portion of their father's inheritance. But Jacob tricks Esau into selling that blessing for which Jacob would have to look over his shoulder for Esau most of the rest of his life. And in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is set to meet Esau for the first time in 20 years. He finds out that Esau is coming with 400 men. This looks like war. So Jacob does what hustlers do. He, he looks at the angles, he hedges his bets, and he rolls the dice. But he also prays for help. And then he sends gifts ahead of him to Esau, trying to appease him, right, to earn favor. And then he splits his family up into two sets. And he sends them separately ahead of him to Esau. In case, like, there's an attack, one of his, like, set families can escape. Jacob had lived his life his way the entire time, but now he's crying out to God for help. And in Genesis chapter 32, verse 24, it says simply, so Jacob remained alone because he'd sent his family, he'd sent all of his stuff, right? He's there alone. A person reaps what they sow, right? Choices have consequences. There are no atheists in foxholes. Your life tells a story. Storms reveal what you're made of. Character is everything and character leaks. There are all kinds of universal truths here in Jacob's story. Like this one. When you're alone in the night with just your thoughts and the weight of who you've become, that in and of itself can feel like war. Jacob is a liar, he's a hustler, and he's also a coward, right? Like he sends his family ahead and he stays. And in chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 24, it tells of a mysterious man. It was an angel of the Lord. The angel of God represents God, but this is still a weird story, and it never actually says this is an angel, but there's some clues. They wrestle, it says, until daybreak. The Hebrew word wrestle, uh, avak, it means to wrestle, to grapple, but it literally means to get dusty. 
<laughs> like, that's how great is that? The storyteller gives us almost no explanation, just some breadcrumbs. It says when the mystery man saw that he couldn't overpower Jacob in the wrestling, he touched Jacob's hip, dislocating it. And then he says to Jacob, let me go. It's almost daybreak. Like, like he's a vampire or something like he can't be in the sun. And there's no explanation here. So your interpretation is as good as mine. But Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let go. Not until you give me your blessing. Now, the last time that Jacob fought for a blessing, he had conned his brother and deceived his father to get the double birthright. The mystery man replies to Jacob, say your name. Say your name. Cry Jacob. He who grasps at the heel. Liar. Deceiver. And Jacob does. He says his name. And in so doing, he admits who he had become. He, he doesn't cry uncle. He cries Jacob. And so should you. The mystery man says to Jacob, from now on, your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel because you have wrestled with God and with humans and you have overcome. And then the mystery man blesses Jacob. And Jacob named that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God and yet my life was spared. And in verse 32, it says, the sun rose above him. And as he passed Peniel, he limped because of his hip. Like Jacob walked differently after his encounter because we always do when we struggle with God. As you follow the story of Jacob from here, you see a transition. He's still not great, but he's more the man of God that he wanted to be. Israel, to wrestle with God. Peniel, to see God. Because of the wordplay here, the ancient rabbis would argue over whether Israel meant to struggle with God or to see God. But I think it's both. Right? Like, like maybe the scene is in the struggling. And there's a lot to wrestle with God about, right? Injustice, intense suffering, sin, and evil. Is life and faith a paradox or is it a, is it a contradiction? And God seems again and again to invite us to struggle with him about all of it. But to do this well, we have to cry Jacob, not uncle. Like this term, cry uncle, it's slang for giving up to surrender. And listen, God indeed wants our allegiance and our obedient surrender to the way of Jesus. But God isn't looking to beat us up and wrestle us down so that we'll cry uncle. God wants to struggle, us to struggle with him and to cry Jacob, to look the reality of who you truly are in the face and admit it, call it out, say your name, cry Jacob. And this isn't weakness. It's living in the light. It's living in the wake of what's really real. And it's the ancient path toward getting a new name, new, new eyes, new truth, new perspective. Like to see God and to see life in full color. This is woeful and wonderful because the scene is in the struggling. And there are many struggles out there to be distracted by other people, other powers, other systems. But it's the stuff in here that God is interested in. Cry Jacob. Henry Nouwen wrote a brilliant book about spiritual leadership. It's, it's like barely 100 pages. He says that we are tempted most to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. And I believe these lead us to hide, to lie to ourselves and to tell a story that's more cartoon than it is consequential. And worst of all, we begin to believe this narrative lie. We exaggerate our experiences. We, we are impatient with small talk, eager to discuss some exotic, spectacular insight into the woes of our day. 
And we do it with the air of confidence, right? Even though we know we're deeply confused and uncertain and we're afraid, and even though we know that most of our life, even though we post all of these crazy, awesome, adventurous things, most of our life is simply what we watched, what we ate, the laundry we did, and the shopping we need to do. Listen, crying Jacob is always better than getting found out. Sometime around 2006, um, my wife and Asher were asleep. Silas wasn't born yet. Um, We got a new computer and I was up late at night setting it up. And I I had always been, since we'd been married, aggressive about what I could access and look at, the way we blocked things and all of that, right? I was, I wanted to be pure. And and, and I had been, you know, with, with that, as far as what my eyes looked like or looked at. But we had just got this new computer. I needed to set it up. Everybody's asleep. And there was this moment I had, there was no struggle. I knew how many young men I had helped and had been able to say for so long, look at me, here's how you can live in this way as far as with this temptation. But I just decided that I didn't care. I'm gonna look at some stuff that night. I opened a browser and I was going to type something in. I just had my hands on the keyboard, hadn't even typed anything in yet. And Amy came out into the hall. She was half awake. She put her hands on my shoulder and she said to me, I had the weirdest dream that you were looking at bad things here on the computer. I know you don't do that stuff, but it just jolted me awake. I cried Jacob, right? I also was terrified of God in that moment. I mean, he'd woken my wife up to, to, to keep me from doing something that I'd already decided to do in my heart. And listen, it's true that I had lived well in that way, but there was another truth lurking just beneath the surface of my spiritual leadership and my purity. My heart wasn't as pure as my habits let on. Jacob, sometimes you get caught, other times you catch it. Sometime around the year 2000, I was at a youth conference, a large one, lots of kids, like, you know, a couple thousand kids I was going to get to speak to. I'd been coaching football in Missouri, right? I was a youth pastor, but I coached football for several years and I was lifting weights a lot with the team. And so I'd gotten, you know, as big as I'd ever been, right? And I was super into my muscles, you know? And I was backstage before I was preaching. I had a t-shirt on at summertime and I was doing, I was doing push-ups to get my like arms pumped up. And then I made the mistake of praying, right, before my sermon. And my heart and my mind immediately said, you're a joke, Frizzell. This isn't a show. It's not about you. Like, show off to Amy when you get home. But you're not here because of how you look or even your speaking ability. You're here because you've been honest and humble about the kingdom of God. Don't lose yourself. Now, you might wonder, was that God or was that me talking? And the answer is yes. I quickly quickly looked around backstage and there was a media guy who had like a flannel shirt on his chair he wasn't wearing. So I asked him if I could wear it. He probably assumed I was cold, but he said yes. And it didn't match at all, but I didn't care because now I could preach without the silliness. Jacob, wrestling with God helps you cry, Jacob, revealing the puppet show that you've maybe been offering to the world. And like my son Silas said when he was like eight or nine, he said, Dad, I'm so glad that God didn't make us robots or puppets. I like being free. (laughs) Me too, man. Jacob, facing your true self and confessing reality can be frightening. It can also be paralyzing for some. Here at Shepherd. We, uh, as pastors, we take turn being on call in different days. And I met with a woman last week 
who kept assuring me that she's not superstitious. And I don't know why, I hadn't asked her anything about that, but she shared that she had been struggling in her faith. And so I did what I do when you counsel people, I ask questions. And, and then after that, I asked some more questions and I let her talk, right? And she eventually said, I don't wanna say my fears out loud because I'm afraid they might come true if I do that, but I don't really believe that because I'm not superstitious. So I asked her some more questions to try to get deeper below the surface. And eventually I said, or asked, what if you are superstitious? And saying that you're not makes you more so. What if by not saying the fear that you have in your mind and heart, what if by not saying it out loud, it ends up gaining more power over you? What if you're not as enlightened as you'd like to think you are? What if you just said your fears out loud? What if you just said what you actually think about God out loud? She shared some of the things that she believed that God protects us from bad if we're good and that if we don't receive the breakthrough, she said, or the answer, it must be because we haven't been faithful to God or that we had sinned. She asked me if I thought that were true. Instead of giving a direct answer, I just began listing some of the main characters in the Bible and how they were so faithful to God and yet they suffered deeply. But she asked me again, but do you believe that it works like this? So I finally said, I believe that God is good. I believe that God's powerful. I believe that life is hard. And I believe that Jesus promises to walk through it with us, but that he never promised to rescue us from it. Then I asked if we could simply like name her fears to just say it out loud, maybe talk about worst case scenario and consider how God has promised to be present in it. And so she, she agreed, but we only made it a couple of minutes until she literally had to cover her ears and say, and she said, I can't, I can't take this. I can't think like this. Crying Jacob is frightening. And for some, it can be spiritually paralyzing. I've been listening to Matthew McConaughey's autobiography. Matthew McConaughey, the actor. It's really good. It's a really good book. I've been listening to it on Audible. He tells about how his initial fame like disoriented, disoriented him. And he'd heard about this monastery, the Monastery of Christ in the desert in New Mexico, where visitors could come and find solitude and guidance. And so he went, he rung the bell. He was shown to a room that had like a, a floor mat where he'd sleep and a little cot but he needed to speak to someone. He said he was drowning, he needed some help, and they pointed him to Brother Christian, who never said a word, but motioned to Matthew to come take a walk with him. And they walked into the desert as Matthew poured out and confessed for three straight hours about his fame and temptations, his desire to still be a good man, but his lust for everything. Brother Christian never said a word. They arrived back at the monastery, they sat down, and it was now four hours in, and Matthew was weeping. He said he was empty. He'd said it all. He'd unpacked all the perversions of his mind to his pastoral stranger. And then he looked over to see what Brother Christian would say in response. Brother Christian put a hand on Matthew's shoulder as he looked at him, and then he put another hand on his shoulder, and then he took both hands, and he put them on Matthew's face, and he whispered, Me too. Me too. And then he smiled and walked away. After I listened to that, I paused it. I went in, told my wife that story because I love good stories. They move me. And I told my wife the story. And when I got to that part, at the end, I put my hands on her face. And when I, when I gave the revelation of what Brother Christian said, and I said, me too, Amy cried because, because Jacob 
This is part of learning to struggle with God about your struggles with yourself. God's presence gives us the courage to cry Jacob and to admit the truth. And listen, you're going to need confidants on that journey. You're going to need mentors to ask the right questions and, and offer some guidance. But more than anything, you're going to need folks who love you and who have struggled well with God in their own lives so they can put their hands on your face after you've poured out your soul and cried Jacob so that they can tell you, me too. This is Jesus's great ministry to us. When God's son was born into human skin, it was the divine moment to experience humanity and to cry out, I understand, me too. It's Jesus sweating blood in Gethsemane, betrayed by a friend, abandoned by everybody. It's Jesus on the cross crying out in God forsakenness. And listen, you can tell me all about Jesus coming and dying to save us from sin and rescue us from the world and bring us to heaven. Amen. But that's, that's like surface level, right? As you read the Gospels, Jesus was preoccupied with heaven and hell on earth here and now. And, so, and, and really, when you, when you begin to look below the surface, surface, why did he save us from sin? And the answer can't simply be to save us from hell because of all his talk about life here and now. He seemed to be focused on saving us for something as much as he was saving us from something. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. But how can you experience full life if you haven't fully faced yourself? Jesus came and lived, suffered, died, and rose again, and he promised to always be with us. And we come to him because he can say to us, I understand, me too. The experience of God's Son becoming, becoming human is an invitation to the world. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16. It says, Jesus isn't a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. No, he's been tempted and tested in every way that we are. All the struggles, all the wrestling. Therefore, let us approach God's presence of grace with confidence so we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I don't believe Jesus offered himself to the world as a solution to our dissatisfaction and uncertainty. I don't believe he came to rescue us from ourselves, but instead to wrestle with us so we can face our true selves. And when we finally cry, Jacob, it's, it's like Jesus puts both hands on our face and says, I understand, right? I'll walk with you the whole way. And if you take Jesus up on that promise, I hope that your hip isn't dislocated, but I promise that you will walk different because proximity to Jesus always sets the pace of life change. Amy has had uh, lupus for quite a while now. It's, a, it's an inflammatory disease where her immune system attacks uh, its own tissue. And early on, it seemed like every month there was like this new or different pain or symptom, like physical pain. She had these, uh, these outbreaks of rash. She lost some hair and it still stinks, but uh, it's better than it was. And right at the time when things shut down all across the world because of COVID, I had this massive pain in my, in my upper back and my lower neck. I thought it was another herniated disc. That's the kind of pain it was. But I found out it was this weird, gnarly arthritis, and it's had me in pain and, and down off and on for the last like six and a half months. 
And as I tell those two stories, it makes me think of this great line in the 1993 movie called Tombstone. It's about uh, the Wild West legends, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday. And Doc is dying in a bed and he's there next to Wyatt. And he asks Wyatt, Wyatt, what do you want most in life? And Wyatt Earp says, I just want a normal life, Doc. To which Doc replies, there is no normal life, Wyatt. There's just life. So get on with it. Over the years, as Amy and I have done life together, we've often cried Jacob together. We've confessed the painful truths of who we really are as we wrestle with ourselves and with God. And we've also confessed heartache from seeing students and friends and loved ones suffer abuse and loss, some of them walking away from their faith, and we've experienced with them death. And there are also times when Amy and I like just need to spew out our fears and our frustrations. Sometimes we whine and complain. And then often one of us will quote Doc, will say, you know, there is no normal life, Wyatt. There's just life. So get on with it. And you get on with it by crying Jacob, by wrestling to admit the reality about you first, and then, and then seeing God seeing the perspective, finding and fighting for the joy and the good in the midst of it all. Because the story of Jacob reminds us not to run from the reality of our inner pain, but, but to name it, to like see your part in it and to wrestle with God through it. And listen, you may walk with a limp and have some scars, but the journey will be honest. It'll be full of joy and full of wonder because Jacob, Israel, Peniel, it's still all true, and it's here, and it's now that the scene is in the struggle. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.